My name is Richard Samuel Deese, and together with my colleague Michael Holm, I am researching the question of how democracy survives in the 21st century. With the support of the Party Center for the Study of the Longer Range Future and the Global Impact Research Fund at Boston University, we put together a symposium on this project that's now available for viewing at the website of the Party Center for the Study of the Longer Range Future. And we're now conducting a series of podcast interviews. Today, we are very happy to have two prominent activists from Europe, Colombe Cahen Salvador and Andrea Venzon. They are the founders of the EU political party Volt Europa and the global political movement NOW. That's N-O-W exclamation point. They will be in conversation with a group of student journalists who founded the dynamic online journal The Politica at Boston University. Now I'd like to introduce my colleague, Michael Holm. Thank you, Sam. Um, as Sam was saying, my name is Michael Holm. Um, I'm a historian and a scholar of US foreign policy and international relations history at Austrian University. Uh, I'm also the faculty advisor to the Politica, so I'm very excited to have students participate in this as well, uh, since this is a project not just for academics, but very much for those who are seeking to make change in the world and, and the next generation. Um, like Sam, uh, I'm a faculty research fellow at the Party Center, uh, and we are really excited to start this podcast project as part of sort of a follow-up to our symposium from last year. Um, allow me to allow the two students at least to introduce themselves. Um, Juliana first. Hi there, my name is JJ Hellerman. I'm a research assistant for both Professor Holm and Professor Deese on the Democracy Project. I'm studying classics and philosophy at Boston University, but currently I'm a student in the College of General Studies. Hi, um, I'm Callie. I'm the co-podcast director at The Politica, which is a publication at Boston University. Um, I'm also studying classics and philosophy, and I am a sophomore in the CAS school. And, and uh, Colom and Andrea, we, we'd like to invite you to introduce yourselves and basically address the question of uh, how you got here and where you're going. And the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for welcoming us here. This is Andrea. Uh, as you can hear from my accent, I'm uh, Italian, uh, based in London currently. And as you currently pointed out before, I'm one of the uh, activists that co-founded First of all, Europa and now. To tell you a bit more about the projects that we are advancing, um, until 2017, I was a very boring management consultant. And um, in 2017, Brexit happened. So the United Kingdom left the European Union. And that was the first time where me, Colomb, and a few other colleagues uh, understood that um, if we don't take action, if we don't take uh, charge some, somehow of our lives, um, democracy and everything we hold dear to our hearts are, could be uh, at risk. And so back then in 2017, we started first the European party vault uh, with the idea of representing European interest in party politics, both at national and supranational level. Um, it was a very successful experience in, the, in meaning that we started from scratch and in just two years we elected um, our third co-founder in the European parliament in Germany, from Germany. And then we started electing local councillors all over the continent of Europe. Um, and we understood that there was power in transnational mobilization and a power that um, must be harvested because the youth, especially the youth has a lot to say on the topic of 
working together across borders um, to tackle the fundamental challenges of our time. That was 2019. And um, in January 2020, so just before uh, the horrible pandemic we are into, uh, Colombia and I launched the second project you mentioned, uh, now, the global movement. Why? Because during our time uh, in European politics, we understood that many of the challenges we're actually trying to tackle through our activism and political engagement, starting from climate change to erosion of democracy to uh, human rights, are actually global topics. So even if a whole continent like Europe would stop, uh, let's say, polluting tomorrow, uh, stop any carbon emission tomorrow, climate change wouldn't be solved. And so we realized that our work would be more impactful and more needed at global level. And so we leveraged that experience that we had in mobilizing people across 28 countries to try to do the same around across 192 countries, countries through now. Obviously, the, the, the field we are playing is a bit different because there is no parliament to aspire to. It's more about activism and bringing people uh, to care about these topics and take action in their own countries about the to topics we cover. Uh, but it's been so far a wonderful experience and I will leave Colomb to, to tell you more where we are at right now. Thanks Andrea. So I'm Colomb, um, as you'll also hear from my accent, I'm French uh, and share a very similar background to Andrea with the exception that I was never, as he describes, a very boring uh, management consultant, but I used to work in human rights. And then the same happened, Brexit happened. Um, and at the time, France was at the risk of heading in the same direction than the UK with um, far right forces calling for a Frexit. Um, and so I also felt very close um, in my heart the fact that we needed to start taking action across borders. And I think the only thing to add to what Andrea said on board was that we also realized um, that through European elections, the youth and um, Europeans in general, their interests were not really represented just because of the way politics works. In general, it happens at the national level. So for all of you that are not familiar with European politics, the way it works is you have national parties that get elected to a European parliament. That is a congregation of national parties sitting together, advancing the national interests, whereas they're supposed to be dealing with European competences. Um, so when we started to understand the dynamics of European politics, which only happened at this stage, even though I studied EU law before, and I realized that we needed to start doing something and mobilizing people and um, amplifying their voice was a way of doing it. And then as Andrea said, we, after electing a co-founder, um, it became clearer and clearer that global topics could not be solved through regional approaches, um, that European politics has um, its needs in solving European issues, but not global topics. Um, so we launched now a year ago, we didn't expect to be stuck in the middle of a pandemic so fast. We actually, in the first paper we wrote about now, six months before the launch, we took the case of pandemics as um, uh, the, the reason for which we would need, an example of a reason for which we would need um, a global governance system and a global movement. Um, so we were unpleasantly surprised when <laughs> it was confirmed six months later. And a year in, we have 10,000 people that joined um, from 120 countries and that are taking action on global campaigns from climate to uh, a fair distribution of vaccines or a global system of governance. Um, again, across the world from democratic to non-democratic countries. So it's been quite a ride in only a year, even though we've been stuck behind computers to be able to see um, all of those people taking action across the world. That's fantastic. I'd also like to invite Callie to introduce herself. Um, 
and, and perhaps to ask the first question. Okay, sure. So my name is Callie. Um, I'm a sophomore at Boston University. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I guess my first question is, so now has multiple goals, and I was just wondering how you guys go about prioritizing them with so much to do. So I think you completely right. And as you can see with the fact that we launched five campaigns in the year, we're not very good at prioritizing them. I think that's the first, <laughs> the first point is we haven't managed to prioritize. I think for us, it's been more, the first year was a testing year. So we've been trying to understand um, what topics work in the sense um, how, how people mobilize around them um, across different regions and based on different methodologies. So for our first year, we really wanted to understand how to touch people's hearts. And um, we think that, you know, a lot of it is logics. Obviously, we need a global system to solve climate change and stop nuclear proliferation and all of this. Um, but this doesn't get people on the street or doesn't get people to lobby their government officials and so on. So we've been testing a lot of different um, topics. And for this, we started with climate change just because it's the easiest one to understand on why you would need a global movement, global politics, etc. cetera. Um, and then we actually realized quite quickly um, I should say that we're progressive global movements. So we have certain fundamental values, including the respect of human rights, the fact that as a woman, I'm equal to Andrea, um, both in the law and in practice and so on. And we realized that although people agreed that climate change was a global topic, a lot of the people who took action didn't agree that, you know, I would have equal rights or some of these other topics. So we launched a second campaign on women's rights just to make it extremely clear that anyone joining um, should have the same values, or it just wasn't the movement to join, maybe you should create a hyper-conservative one. And so that was the second campaign, not in terms of prioritizing, more in terms of actually we need to make our values crystal clear. We don't want to create any global um, governance, any global order. We want to create one where everyone is equal and has rights. And then um, we tried to slowly start tackling the issue of global governance. We understood that we, at least at this stage, we didn't have the power to mobilize people on global governance. So by saying, oh, we need you know, a democratic UN um, or a League of Democracies or whatever, we knew that we couldn't mobilize people on this. Um, it feels too far away from people's hearts. So we started going about it by talking about different democratic struggles. So from Hong Kong to Belarus to Venezuela, um, Cuba, Poland, I mean, there's so many, so, so many happening right now. Um, and this is how the next campaign came about. And we started organizing protests and, and um, uh, teaching, organizing methodologies to activists across the world so that they could then enter in contact with their politicians and start lobbying them to make this happen. And then the last topic we tackled was um, COVID. Uh, we actually didn't plan to tackle it at first because we were born when COVID started and we didn't want to pretend that we could do something about it when we're still too small. But then we had some of our members um, from Brazil um, and a few other places that actually worked on the front line of the pandemic as doctors and nurses um, who told us, look, you can't be a credible global movement and not talk about the fact that we won't have access to vaccines when you will. And that was back in April 2020. Um, and they told us you need to launch a campaign on this. You need to start talking about it, um, et cetera. And so we launched one. We actually got a reply from the WHO um, head a week after the start of the campaign saying that he agreed that across the world, we should have equal access to vaccines, but he didn't have the power to do it. Um, and so that's how the other topic came about. So long answer short, we're not managing to prioritize very well. We, we had, we're planning to launch three other campaigns on different topics. And we're just kind of seeing how we can impact change as we go while keeping a global agenda. JJ, would you like to jump in with a question? 
Sure. Um, you know, I was I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the methodology behind your campaigns. I think much of the now movement seems to take place on social media, um, and I I think you know there are many many different problems and also many successes associated with social media campaigns. So I was wondering if you could discuss. You know, when when is raising awareness online effective and when does it become um, an end in itself? When is it what they call slacktivism? Thank you so much for this question. And actually, um, it's very interesting because both Colomb and I are a bit allergic to social media and we are we really love the grassroots part of organizing. Uh, but because of the pandemic, obviously, there's very been, it's been very challenging to do the, the physical the physical job. Uh, but to give you a sense, in the first two months of 2020, before the pandemic became actually uh, a major issue for, for most of the, the planet, we created almost 50 teams of activists around the planet with the sole, with the sole uh, goal of actually implementing our campaign campaigns on the ground. Uh, and this means from signatures collection to past referendum, uh, from, to staging protests in front of government buildings, and so on and so forth. Then obviously COVID hit. And so we had to move a lot of our work to online petitions, email campaigns, which obviously they have, uh, I think they have their power and in history, sometimes uh, they have worked quite well, but I agree with you on saying that it's not enough. Uh, it's very easy to disregard even a thousand emails into your, to your inbox, but it's way more difficult to disregard even 10 people in front of your offices if you are a company uh, misbehaving, let's say this way. Um, and so we always try to keep alive the physical part of our work. So, for example, in the democracy campaign that Colomb mentioned, every Friday uh, we convene activists all over the planet and we ask them to protest in front of government buildings to ask uh, democratic governments to do more and get together to protect freedom fighters. And we call this action Fridays for Freedom, surfing on the Fridays for Future topic. Um, and in six months, we get more than four million people to follow our work um, online and probably we also regularly uh, protest in 30 to 40 cities in the middle of a pandemic. So obviously um, we, we need to work online and I think also this is the age of social media. It's powerful to work online. It's easy to connect people. Even if you are only one activist in, in a small village in Nigeria, if you see that people are um, mobilizing in London, New York and Paris, you may be very motivated uh, to keep on going. Uh, but I can't wait for the time where we actually can go back fully uh, on the streets because I think that we are humans and this is still the strongest way to show, showcase support and apply pressures is to show physically that these um, matters um, matter to us. These issues are important and we care. And um, so we, we have to answer precisely your question. Yes, we do a lot of digital activism and we apply the digital tools that we know where to apply, but uh, this is just a replacement, a temporary replacement to um, the real community organizing work that um, Colombia and I have performed across Europe, and now we are also uh, implementing across the planet um, as we speak. Michael, would you like to jump in on the question of the D10? We, we, we were talking about that before uh, the interview. Yeah, I was I was wondering what so you, you talk a lot about the sort of vision for democracy, especially sort of democracy across borders. Um, and I'm wondering what kind of 
vision you sort of had for, there's been a lot of talk about D10 and the sort of expansion of the G7 um, for a, a sort of a broader democratic emphasis in international politics and cross-border collaboration. How do you see this going? Is it, is it an area in which you're optimistic? There's a big difference between activism on the street and Andrea's point about sort of protesting in front of government buildings and then this sort of political persuasion, right? How do you get governments on board? How, how do you see that working both sort of on the ground, but all sort of the political ground, but also the influence you can have in this particular area? And so this is actually one of our core focus. So the Fridays for Freedom, the protests we're doing, um, are just one of the ways of raising awareness that we, we're using to um, create what we call a League of Democracies, which is basically a D10 but expanded. Um, and we've been doing this just because we think that for people, for normal citizens that are neither elected nor um, have a huge amount of money because they have huge corporations or whatever, to be able to have some weight on this debate on global democracy, we need to show up on the streets. So we've been doing Fridays for Freedom and thanks to it actually, for example, in the UK, we had both the Labour and Conservative parties that reached out to work together on um, the idea of international democracy. In Italy, we had senators that reached out as well to work on the idea of a League of Democracies, same in the US. So protest for us as a way to show legitimacy and credibility on the topic to show that citizens are behind it. And then as an organization and with the organizers we have, we start lobbying. So doing the behind the, the, the scene work um, with politicians, we've elected officials from all across the world to achieve a policy objective. So we don't just want to raise awareness, that's great, but we actually want to change stuff quickly. Um, and on the D10, we actually started this campaign on democracy with the idea of the D10, because it was at the time when Boris Johnson was, was talking a lot about you know, expanding the G7 into a D10. And it started from the campaign we did around Hong Kong because we had a lot of activists in Hong Kong that were telling us, look, we need international support. We need um, countries to coordinate sanctions, actions, et cetera. And so we thought of the D10 and then we quickly moved away from it. I think for two main reasons. The first one was um, the version of the UK of the D10 by the UK is more a non-China alliance as we see it and as it's being described um, than an actually type of League of Democracies, which, you know, for us, a League of Democracies, we need to tackle the massive human rights violations, crackdowns on democracies and genocide that um, China is perpetrating. But you don't create, or at least I believe you don't create a new world, a new global system of governance by just, um, you know, fighting against a mean big guy. You have to do something more. You have to be able to inspire hope, a real vision of the future. And for us, that's not by just creating an anti-China alliance. And the second element for which we moved away was that it, was, it wasn't inclusive. So yes, you have more countries that are not um, purely from the West, um, but a D10 is not representative of the world's interests. Um, it's still representative too much of the old world's interests. Um, and so we moved towards the idea of creating a League of Democracies, which is basically all countries um, that are democratic on, on most democracy indexes, um, coming together to coordinate Again, sanctions in the first place against um, officials responsible for crackdowns on democracies. But second, to also have um, the interest of bettering democracy. So, you know, when you look at the, even just the G7, it's not like all of our countries are doing great when it comes to democracy. Uh, the easiest example is what happened in the US in January, but France, my country in the last year, has been cracking down on protest rights and, and protesters a lot. And it's a case of a lot of other countries as well. So first, a League of Democracy to be able to have credibility 
um, and also just because it's the right thing to do, should be able to hold other countries within the league accountable and better democracy by sharing best practices. So for example, if you included innovative democracies like Taiwan, um, that is using a lot of um, different methodologies of, of um, participatory democracy, digital democracy, et cetera, um, you could better democracy in all the democracies that are a bit outdated sometimes. And um, so we move towards this idea of a legal democracy. Again, the D10 could be a start, but our main point is it has to be open for all countries that have certain standards of democracies to join. Um, so that it's truly representative of the world and of um, citizens' interests across the world. So our way of going about it is we're targeting the G7 just because it has a lot of media attention. And we see between President Biden, who wants to create a summit of democracies, Boris Johnson, who wants to um, start a D10, and other countries that have similar aspirations, that it might be a good moment to start this conversation. But for us, it's fundamental that it's open to other countries as well. I ask a follow-up to that then, because um, I think I think that those are some really inspiring sort of visions. And I'm so I'm going to try not to be the negative old academic here. Um, one of the things that comes from studying international relations over time is the sort of inevitable feeling that we have these grand ideas, and you know we create these visions for how the world is going to work together. And then at some point, an issue that I know you've raised in your own work as well. The, the sort of ugly reality of national interest comes to the surface. And so I'm wondering how you are thinking about this League of Democracies, which sounds like it's going to have some political drive from the institutions that already exist, and how that is going to square with the fact that sooner or later that's going to rub up against national interest, be it in London or in Paris or in Washington or wherever, for, for, for regardless of which member states there are. Um, I can answer to this one. So I think that um, while democracy must be the main driving factor for such a league, there may be ad many other benefits in joining such a club. Um, for example, trade or a favorable condition on um, defense or many other topics, which obviously would expand the project um, if, if we were to start with the whole portfolio. But this is also how, for example, the European Union came about, right? European Union started from a, an economic drive and became a democracy project. Here we are taking it from the other side. Let's start it from democracy, but we need to make sure that there are um, reasons for a country uh, to stay in, even if the particular democracy is not a risk, right? So um, countries must find um, benefits and incentives to keep on participating and um, enjoying this membership. One obviously also being the best practice sharing that Colomb mentioned in democracy. Uh, there is a lot to learn in how to keep uh, citizens engaged in um, today's world. And for example, Taiwan, there is an example we mentioned before, is at the forefront of this challenge and doing way better, way, way better than most, most uh, major democracies uh, where young people are incredibly disengaged. Um, so I think there is already there an incentive. And then I think we could expand it to trade or space exploration. You know, there are many topics where a coordinated international, real coordinated international response could bring uh, major benefits and maybe this is the right house for this interest. And I think just on the cynical side as well, um, you know, from a purely selfish and self-interested perspective, 
a lot of countries, I think, would have an interest in at least starting the discussions around it. The UK is the perfect example. They just left the EU and want to pretend that, you know, their eyes are on the global price. Um, what better way of doing it than starting a conversation on this? And and from and this is because I, I, I'm French. I'm very cynical in a way, but I don't really care for the motivation. I, I don't care what the motivations of the countries are, at least, as long as it happens. Um, so we need a League of Democracies. We need democracies to act. Uh, if it plays well within the national agendas, good. They have more reasons to do it. And I think a lot of um, national interests right now are aligning with this, from citizens' movement that we see, whether, again, it's Fridays for Future, to um, Black Lives Matter, to there's a lot of citizens' movement that are clearly calling for something more. And it would play within national politicians' agendas and, and electoral timetables to show that they're doing something for the good of the world, for the good of society, for the good of people. So I think it also aligns. And on what you said, I completely agree, there will be a moment when national interest will come and it will probably crumble a bit and so on, but it's the case of any grand project. When you have um, this type of utopia at the end of the road, you, it's not like it's gonna be a straight line that you're gonna be able to, to well, you have the project and then it's gonna start and probably somehow it's gonna get a bit destroyed and someone will have to rebuild it a bit, etc. So for me, it's kind of managing to align those different interests, starting small with a few countries, expanding it. Somehow it will lose track of the fact that it's about democracy and citizens will need to organize major protests, demonstrations or whatever happens at this stage in history to be able to bring it back on track. I also want to be a fuddy-duddy old academic on this, um, but about a different issue. And that's the question of the United Nations. Um, uh, something Michael Holm and I have both studied a lot was the tremendous burst of interest in democratic world federalism uh, immediately after the Second World War. Um, and it soured very quickly uh, with the Cold War, you know, with the Soviet intransigence in Eastern Europe and then the Korean War. And then it pretty much became very marginal. Um, and then some people thought, well, gosh, if the Soviet Union you know, which of course was still run by Stalin until 1953, is going to be this way. Maybe we should just have a world organization without them. And that sort of speaks to that League of Democracies idea. But then there were other people who I thought very reasonably said, look, you know, we're trying to prevent World War III here. And we're also trying to solve problems that we can all solve together, whether we're democracies or not. Um, and so, you know, we stuck with the UN and, uh, you know, the major powers have a veto in it, which means that they don't really have to leave because if there's something they don't like, they can veto it. And there've been disastrous consequences for that, but because it's held together, it's become a place where people can uh, do research on say, you know, the intergovernmental plan panel on climate change, uh, the World Health Organization, which I'm very happy that the U.S. is rejoining, you know, and, and those things. So the, I, I, I want to ask you, do you think the U.N. is worth, you know, keeping around even with its pretty clear impediments that probably aren't going to change soon? And what do you think of um, some of the current campaigns to reform the U.N., such as the campaign for a UN parliamentary assembly? Um, so yes and yes, <laughs> in short. In long, look, we live in a complex world. There's a lot of different topics to be tackled at the global level. Um, and I don't believe what that one institution should have all of the answers or be the only way forward. 
And also the smart way forward for me would be not to put all of your eggs in the same basket and try different approaches. It's not like we're doing great in terms of solving global issues. So let's try different approaches at the same time and try to make the world a better place. The UN has done a lot. It's managed to a certain extent to preserve peace and security, which are its main um, uh, missions and topics, and that's great, uh, but it's not doing a lot for democracy. Um, and, and that's, in, to a certain extent, for me, that's okay because it's not its original purpose. Um, so as you said, it, it can actually try to tackle climate and other topics, and it should. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have another organization that is capable of tackling the topic of democracy. And that can work alongside with the UN in a lot of situations, um, or alone, depending on the, on the topic, but with the sole of interest of preserving and promoting democracy. For me, democracy is a topic that is important enough on its own to, be, to justify the creation of either a loose coalition or a formal organization or something else. Um, and then I saw some of the campaigns for a parliamentary assembly to reform the UN Security Council and so on. I personally agree completely with all of them. We should continue to try to better the UN um, reform its very undemocratic practices, et cetera. Um, but the truth at the end of the day is when you have some of the biggest authoritarian countries that are either the, in the Human Rights Council, in the UN Security Council and so on, it's a joke to think that the UN has um, the slightest chance of tackling democracy. It, it, it can tackle human rights violations, but it can't tackle democracy. So great if we manage to democratize it a bit through an assembly, through anything else, that's great, but it won't ever tackle democracy. Um, and so for me, it justifies the creation of a league of democracies. And then I think there's another question that is being raised, and I'll just say it because it's the main criticism we, we often get with the league of democracy, which is, but don't you think that it will create a type of Cold War situation um, of you know the free world versus whatever. Um, and for me, the short answer to this is, I think we often don't see it, but it's already the case. You already see blocks of authoritarian countries um, standing together. You already see um, the Chinese Communist Party investing heavily through the Belt and Road Initiative and others into a lot of countries. And you already see democracies kind of trying to work together. So at one point on democracy, it's worth trying to take proactive actions and, and solving the issue and protecting democracy and standing together instead of being passive and waiting for it to disappear or, or just to stay the same instead of vetering it. Um, while understanding that we don't live in a black and white world and on other topics like climate change, we will need to collaborate. Um, and, and, and I think and I hope that even if you have a disagreement on democracy, countries understand that climate change is important enough on the other side for them to still engage even if um, you know you might be targeting one another with sanctions um, on the topic of democracy. Thank you so much for that and my own thought about the UN Parliamentary Assembly in response to what you said is that um, it could at least change the conversation about the UN. That is a non-binding Parliamentary Assembly could allow people to build bridges uh, over party and common values, the same way that, say, uh, Greens unite across Europe over common values. And it wouldn't all be about this delegation represents this national government and is just speaking in the interest. So it would be non-binding, but I think it would change it would change the way that we think about the UN. It might be quite valuable. Um, JJ has a question. I do. I kind of wanted to jump off of off of the last point. Um, something that I have been thinking a lot and have been discussing a lot with Professor Holm is sort of this this 
large, this grand reckoning of American intellectuals over the past couple of decades, sort of concerning how um, how our attempts to proliferate democracy abroad have have led to really, you know, terrible repercussions, a lot of violence, a lot of pain. Um, and so I was sort of wondering how you see your mission in, in the proliferation of democracy differing from past missions and um, how, how you attempt to circumvent this phenomenon of, of sort of placing a Western framework over countries which do not necessarily hold the same desires as, as modern democracies. So I think we have a huge lot here is that we are a people-led movement. And so many of our uh, democracy requests and actions are actually driven by people from the countries concerned. So while, you know, Colombia and I come from democratic countries, we have a lot of activists from Venezuela, from Hong Kong, from China, driving our, the efforts um, that, we, that we bring forward, um, often abroad, obviously, um, because they are either experts or refugees. Uh, but you see there is a request coming from those people uh, affected every day by authoritarianism and dictatorship. So while obviously we always need to be careful uh, not to export too much um, the mindset that we, we grew up with and we know very well, um, I think that this is a real solution, is the fact that if, if you create an inclusive movement, an inclusive de demand where people um, that are mostly concerned can, can, voice, can voice their opinion, their interest, and really showcase how, um, for example, in this case, a League of Democracy would be incredibly beneficial to uh, the faith of Hong Kong, the faith of Venezuela. Um, you probably overcome most of the difficulties as you, as you correctly point out, um, the democracy movement has faced in the last uh, two decades is the one of exporting it and really imposing a model. So here we are co-creating a model with people concerned. And I think this is really the only secret um, to, to tackle this issue. Uh, can I jump in on that for a second? Because uh, I think I think I think Andrea makes a really, really important point here about this the significance of sort of the, the both the grassroots growth, but also the sort of the indigenous democracy, if you will, that it that this this sort of notion of building something from within rather than the 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 exported model that the United States in particular has represented over, as you say, certainly the last couple of decades, but to a certain extent for for, for much longer than that. Um, I wonder though, and, and, I, and I don't know the answer to this question, but I wonder if, because while you're talking about this sort of vision of, 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 of export of democracy, we've also seen, and Colombia touched a little bit upon that, the sort of the emergence of strong nationalist movements in, in several countries that sort of provide a certain degree of backlash to this Brexit being the most publicized example, I suppose, but we see that in a lot of countries that they, that, and, and I'm wondering, are you as sort of in terms of your organizations, in terms of your work, are you are you receiving any sort of pushback from some of those organizations uh, or do you have sort of enough of a public profile that you're in the in the target range of those people who might disagree with what you're trying to do? So I think for both uh, Volt and now we had a fair share of um, trolling online from those people um, and offline, to be able to be honest, especially I, I toured France for the European elections and uh some of the regions were fun, let's say this way. Um, <laughs> but 
I think something also interesting beyond the, the simple national nationalist approach, which I think justifies even more the fact of having a stronger vision for democracy. I think one of the issues when we talk about it is often, well, you know, no, we should stay within the EU or within the UN, or we should preserve the status quo, but that's not a strong vision enough for me. You need to provide, again, it's what I said at the beginning, but a, a vision of the future and of hope for people to even start believing in it. I think the interesting aspect we've noticed with our campaign, for example, um, linked to Hong Kong, was the conflicts of interest between democracy in one place and who would be willing to protect it. So for example, what we noticed is because at the beginning we focused a lot on Hong Kong just because one of the person who helped us a lot with now at the beginning was Joshua Wong. He randomly came across it on Twitter. And then we had a lot of those discussions around democracy. Um, we then moved obviously to a, more struggles and to talking about democratic practices, including in democratic countries. So, so, so we did talk quite a bit about President Trump um, and, and his attacks on democracies and the fact that, um, you know, someone cracking down on democracy at home doesn't justify supporting them because they might be more supportive of Hong Kong than another president. And what we started to notice that was actually quite complicated was that a lot of supporters of democratic and freedom fighters from Hong Kong to, you know, the Uyghurs to Tibet um, or Taiwan are actually people who have very different standards at home. Um, but that when you mobilize people on the ground in the countries that are under attack, um, there's a sense of urgency, which is completely understandable to a certain extent, justifying the fact of supporting someone who's not behaving as a democratic leader at home. So I think that's one of the issues we've been having probably the most difficulties in dealing with, and we're still trying to, and, and it goes for a lot of conversations and explaining that, you know, for us, the reasons for which we're doing this work is no people is more important than another one. And, and you know, we are equal across the world, regardless of, of what countries we're born in. And, and this is the fundamental value that drives, I think, a lot of our work. There's no reason for which Andrea and I should be afforded certain rights and not someone in another country. And from this moment on, I think there can be a conversation about the fact that, well, you know, great that Trump supports Hong Kong. It's probably for self-serving political interests, but regardless of the reasons, that's great, but it doesn't justify um, attacks on democracy at home. And we still should still be able to cut it out. But I think that's the main difficulty we've been having um, with this type of debates of how do you how do you align those different interests of politicians that don't level up to democracy, but at the same time are the ones willing to actually support democratic struggles. Um, we don't yet fully have the answer. It's been we've been trying to engage more politicians, more on the progressive spectrum um, on those topics. And, and I think a lot of them have become more mainstream, like Hong Kong. But we noticed, for example, that until recently, the more traditional left was way less willing. Um, I'm saying left in France, I, I, I guess in the US it's more just traditional democratic party, uh, but was more was less willing to actually um, take a strong stance on Hong Kong, on the Uyghurs, on a lot of this um, because of historical ties um, with communist parties. Um, and so for us, it's also been, it's been a, a fun riddle to try to crack. Um, I, I I guess I have a couple of questions. And um, the first would be, um, how would you make the case that um, democracy is not a luxury to be attained, you know, after somebody has clean water and enough to eat, et cetera? Because I believe that's how the, the, the idea was often framed during the Cold War was, Oh yes, it'd be nice if 
every place was a democracy, but in this place, people are mainly concerned with having enough to eat, so they're going to go with this or that authoritarian leader who is allegedly, you know, going to provide those things. That was one of the justifications, you know, for apologists for for uh, Marxist-Leninist regimes in a lot of places, right? Um, uh, would you make the case that democracy is not, in fact, an ice, icing on the cake uh, or a luxury, but actually integral to achieving uh, ecological sustainability, um, uh, uh, economic stability, uh, and, and other things that are more material that people you know, feel an urgent need for because they'll die without them? So here, uh, here I have a very clear answer, but with a caveat. Okay. And the very clear answer is that history shows that through democracy, people achieve higher level well-being. Um, we see it all the most advanced uh, countries on this planet are democracies, and uh, the process of democratization has brought uh, incredible level well-beings and um, wealth and uh, access to food security and anything else uh, to people that have transitioned from authoritarianism, monarchies to actually democracy. So there's a clear historical correlation. So uh, I think that the answer is definitely democracy is not a luxury, is a, is a key enabler for people to get lift out of poverty and of direness and actually um, enter the um, middle to high income uh, um, status of the world. Um, my only caveat is China. So it's obviously, probably the biggest dilemma of the last um, 20 years on this planet is the fact that China has shown that through, with a authoritarian approach, uh, a kind of a technocracy that is fully managed by a one-party system, actually some level of well-being can be achieved in a very quick um, span of time. And I think this is actually the biggest issue that democracy is facing right now. The Chinese model, the this TCP model is actually working out de decently for Chinese people. There are people that actually uh, were in the span of generation achieved incredible uh, growth in terms of wealth. Um, and the country has been uplifted, at least the majority of it, right? Not obviously minorities and those that are suffering, but many people have moved from like uh, farmer-like uh, life state status to middle income um, status. And I think this is exactly why democracies need to better themselves and innovate themselves. Because if we just look at the economic performance of these two models, if I'm uh, an alien coming from Mars, Mars, I would actually say, oh, maybe the Chinese model is the one we should go for. Um, and so here comes um, the whole discussion of creating a league of democracy or transnational democracy that can prove once more the democracy is the right model uh, for the whole world and not only for those countries that are already doing very well and they just want to preserve the status quo. And um, so I want to point this out because I think this is on us, is on people like us to prove this point and show to the next generation that actually democracy is still the best enabler to a wonderful, sustainable um, and a happy life while uh, authoritarian rules while bringing probably some material, material advancement is not a sustainable model in the long term, because unless, especially unless you are part of the majority of the population that tends to be uh, one race, one gender, and one religion, uh, you're doing very, any, anyone else is excluded by um, the 
you know, the advancement of the society. But I think that's also what Andrea is saying is something we have members in China um, that have been talking a lot to us about this. We've been having long, um, hopefully secure conversations about this on the, on the fact that a year ago when we started talking, they were telling us, look, we really hope that as soon as we achieve maybe a bit of a higher even um, well-being, the mindset will start shifting. Um, we really hope so. And, and we received recent emails after the pandemic or when the pandemic started getting under control in, in China um, of members telling us we're losing hope. We don't think it's actually going to happen. It looks like people around us, our family members, et cetera, are more convinced than ever that this is the right model. Um, and we don't really see an alternative because when we look at democracies, you guys are doing really badly um, on a variety of, of different factors. And those are people that are, you know, join a movement as want a league of democracies, want a democratic transition and so on. And as Andrea said, for me, this is the biggest issue. It's we often don't actually have an answer to this. We, pre we stuck, I think, a lot in the old thinking that democracy works and the rest doesn't. But, but this is beginning to be untrue to a certain level. Um, and this is when, for me, we need to provide a better version, not just say, look, you need to come to our standards, but actually create a better vision of the future. I guess I want to jump in with a follow-up. Um, or, or it, it's, um, I, I applaud all of us for, for not using the term neoliberalism until now, but now I'm going to go and use it. Um, and uh, it, it, it's basically, you know, the idea that perhaps... Uh, the reason people become um, disenchanted and then angry at uh, Brussels and the European Union or at uh, the UN or other uh, institutions of global governance is that they feel they've been captured by um, economic interests, right? Um, uh, you know, that lead to man-made catastrophes like the, uh, you know, housing boom and bust that, you know, started the United States in 2008 and then rippled out and created problems all over the world. And so a nationalist who says, I'm going to take control of things here in this country and protect you from those global elites who really are just lining their own pockets. Um, Yes, there's bigotry connected to that. You know, there's racism connected to that. Uh, there's anti-Semitism and is Islamophobia connected to that. But that basic appeal uh, that I'm going to protect you against these global elites because they really they're getting very rich through globalization, and your situation isn't getting any better. Um, that 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 has impact for people, even if they don't have the baggage of all of those prejudices. And so how do you address that person, you know, the person who there really are people like this in the United States who voted for Obama in 2008 and then voted for Trump in 2016 because they are just so uh, uh, frustrated and afraid of how global governance is happening? to the extent that they can see it. Give them political representation. For me, the biggest issue of all the institutions you name is that the fact they hardly represent the common citizen and they are often always intergovernmental organizations uh, and where discussions happening miles away from uh, the streets of, of any country. And um, we don't see how our voice is represented in the seats of power. And I think this 
is a huge limitation on the European Union. He's obviously becoming increasingly more democratic with the European Parliament and so on. But the, the real shot is always called by the EU Council, there is only heads of state, um, which means it's a very, very indirect democracy, uh, per se. And this was the biggest criticism, criticism coming from the United Kingdom, for example, the fact that, um, you know, no one here really ever say on the agenda in Brussels. And I think the same for the UN and many other organizations that we're seeing, like the World Health Organization, for example. So I think that the, the biggest way to tackle this issue is the way of giving people a vote or a very close way to follow, influence, and be informed of what's going on in these uh, global seats of power. And so, for example, a parliamentary system, uh, electing representative to the United Nations, um, ensuring that uh, there is a citizen initiative, um, kind of a referendum system for the UN the United Nations or other organization would be extremely beneficial to preserve their role and improve it and expand it. And until we don't get there, I feel that the only way, the only thing we can do is basically ensure that at least uh, the well-being of people is constantly increased or kept. Like if we can't, if, if you don't give political representation, at least ensure that the global system works for all. That's the, the best thing you can do. But I don't think there is something uh, that can can hold forever. So let's say the President Biden does a great job in the next four years. The uh, U.S. economy improves for the majority of the citizens. I'm sure that he might be reelected. But if in 10, 20 years um, the system keeps on being so intransparent and someone from um, the Rust Belt doesn't have a way to understand why, um, I don't know, trade uh, from Mexico is so open and jobs are going away, I think we're going to have, uh, <laughs> I don't know, Ivanka Trump uh, coming to power. We'll so it. that's the real problem. And I think second element would be to actually talk about real problems. So, and I don't mean for national politics, like the example that Andrea gave, but for supranational institutions, uh, and I think this comes by giving people to vote. But if you listen to the debates, I mean, I consider myself, you know, I follow what's happening just for my work. I don't understand half of what is talked about, to be honest. Really, and, and honestly, I pay attention and I try to understand it. But one, I can't get myself to care about a lot of what is said. And second, I don't get it. The words and so on, I, I really don't get it. I think it's about actually remembering that this is about people and their problems in their everyday lives and solving it. And a lot of the intergovernmental organizations and debates, topics, and the way they function are just too far away. And, and this is when, yes, a lot of the people who wanted to get out of the EU, there is an element of racism, xenophobia, and all of this. There's also an element of truth. And again, I'm extremely pro-European. I co-founded with Andrea the first pan-European party. But th there is a real element of truth that the EU is intransparent, but also that people don't understand it and feel like their daily problems are not dealt with. And this is because one, often they're not. And second, because um, the EU doesn't work as it should, like a lot of intergovernmental organizations. It doesn't have enough competences over problems that are global um, or regional and that it should tackle. Um, and then national interests come into play. So for me, if we reform those organizations to give them the power to actually solve issues that people care about, whether it's unemployment and migration flows or else, um, I'm sure that a lot of those trends of nationalistic trends of getting out of those organizations and so on would diminish. And then it's actually to remember, you know, in, in those rooms where we talk about global democracy, it's all very hypothetical. Um, and most people really don't care. Uh, if I talk about it to any of my friends, I think all, 
all of them would leave the room. I, I really don't see them staying for one staying for one of those conversations. And I think the truth is they just don't think it's relevant. A lot of them lost their jobs during the pandemic, uh, lost their housing, etc. Global democracy doesn't seem relevant. So unless we actually link it to people, people's economic opportunities, um, standards of living, and so on, I don't see how it can work. We have to remember that this is about people's lives, and we have um, extremely important interests on the short term as well that we need to deal with. We shouldn't, for me, alienate the people that are facing a tough situation. I'm not justifying a single second, by the way, voting for, for an extremist one way or another, but um, that are facing um, difficult situations and, and try to deal with it. Thank you so much. And I, I share your uh, experience with a, a staggering lack of interest in world federalism or global democracy. Um, it's a it's a hobby horse of mine, <laughs> and uh, I'm always glad to find people who are interested in talking about it because it's a way to clear a room uh, uh, for certain. Um, and UN reform is usually a way to clear a room too, especially if you're around UN people. So, but I want to give JJ a chance to follow up. Yeah, I sort of um, just wanted to continue on that note of participation. You know. Um, Historically, representation, I think, has taken place within the framework of, of political parties. And you guys describe yourselves as, you know, a largely movement-based organization. And, um, you know, as, as the research assistant, I did stalk you guys online a fair amount. And I came across one of your articles uh, calling for sort of um, movement-based politics as a replacement for pol party politics. However, at the same time, Volt Europa was a political party and now kind of continues to work within the framework of political parties by influencing party politicians. And so I was, I was sort of wondering if you could talk a little bit about your continuing relationship with, with the political party framework and how you see that evolving in the future. It's always very difficult to talk about an addiction, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Basically, I, we know that parties are kind of low, um, but we also know that they have a big role to play, especially at national level. Uh, at European level, we try to build one. And I think that in the future, we might want even global parties um, to partake in democratic elections whenever an institution will be built uh, for that purpose. And the truth is that political parties, uh, and again, we have, we've seen one very closely, um, are machines that waste a lot of energies in inner fighting and inner discussions, which again is also the beauty of democracy. But if I know that there are pressing issues like freedom being taken away, I would rather build a movement and hit as hard as I can on a particular goal to fix it. And especially in global topics like climate change and so on, when time at our disp disposition is very short. And I think the movements that we, with single or multiple issues um, under the radar are more suitable uh, to achieve a result. And so I keep up my criticism of national parties. I think they have a role to play, um, especially right now at national level, because this is how democracies have been built for decades or centuries. And so this is the way we can influence things at national level. But I think when we, when we venture into the space of transnational political, uh, transnational politics, global politics, and I think movements should lead the way. And then whenever, uh, you know, the, the landscape is ready for it, let's create global politics, let's create global parties, uh, and let's bring all the annoying party <laughs> dynamics also 
at global level. So I'm not sure that I fully agree with this one, Andrea. I think this might be the first point where we disagree during this conversation. <laughs> now, I think I agree on the fundamental assumption that um, for me, the issue with party politics is the fact that they exist within the national framework. And if you talk about global topics, national parties cannot solve global topics. They operate within national frameworks, within national electoral timelines and so on. So for me, it's just not a way of solving global um, topics. And then there's the fact that people are disengaged from, from parties. So I think if you look, especially in Western countries, um, at the amount of people who used to join a party uh, like 50 years ago versus right now, it's dropped significantly. Um, it depends, of course, per country, but the proportion of the youth in that has like a party membership, it used to be a thing, right? Like you used to get out of, of school and have a party membership. We don't have party memberships anymore. Very, very few people like buy their party memberships and go to their parties' conventions. Um, and I think that's just the fact that you've disengaged from party politics and whether it's right or wrong, I don't know. But um, I think because the topics they care about as well are global and they realized or, or go beyond a country or beyond a single party that they, their party was not capable of dealing with it. You saw it a lot with, for example, climate. Not one party can solve climate change, not within a country, not within a global system. Um, and then I think maybe it's our side of the spectrum I think on the progressive side, you have a lot of small parties being born and then a lot of the attention of party politics is to gain votes from one party to another. And as a result, mainly focusing on, on stealing votes from another progressive party. And again, we did this as part of all to the European elections, so guilty as charged, um, but, but uh, with a different focus of the European Union. But um, when we should be aiming at um, trying to solve beyond parties within a certain spectrum, global topics. I do agree, however, that global politics will be needed. Uh, for this, we need a, a world governance as well to be able to, to run for elections, but in general, that parties across the world should be aligning, whether through party politics, I'm not sure, whether through movement politics, maybe more, um, but should be aligning um, on their political agendas um, and policies to be able to solve global issues. I, I just want to jump in on that because it's a very interesting question. and and. And my feeling is that, uh, you know, sort of the lesser of two evils in my mind to see people who have similar values in different countries to align according to those values and try to do something as opposed to align along national identity. And, and, and so uh, uh, party politics, of course, have all kinds of silliness attached to them. But, um, uh, uh, you know, to, to me, it seems the lesser of two evils then everybody lining up about nationalism and unfortunately say here in the United States, our nationalism distorts our party politics, right? Because each party has to prove how patriotic they are, et cetera, um, when many of the problems are much larger than this country. But, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, um, a, an interesting issue and you sort of choose your poison, I guess, whether it's nationalism or party, uh, party feeling. Um, Michael, you've got a question you want to jump in with. Yeah, so you touched a little bit sort of on this issue of the European Union a couple of times. Um, I should, for sake of full disclosure, I'm European myself. I'm from Denmark. Um, and, and so the European Union for a long time has sort of been caught in this sort of reality of one part being this international organization that sort of brings Europeans together and and that sort of works in this Brussels that most people feel disconnected from, as you touched upon earlier, at least many people feel disconnected from. Uh, and 
then it's also these sort of nationalistic governments. And we've seen that in debates over migration. We've seen it to a certain extent in debates over COVID, right? Um, and, 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 and other issues in recent years. Um, and I'm wondering if you sort of, is, is the EU sort of a viable framework for some of this collaboration you're talking about? And, or, or, or do we need this League of Democracies to truly sort of go beyond that? And if we do, are we, where are we sort of in terms of either European expansion or these, the, the lessening of the European side and, and any other Brexits to follow? Uh, or how do you sort of see the EU's future in this, in, in this, uh, in this, these ambitions that you have? So before I start criticizing it, let me start by saying that I love the EU. I believe in the idea of the EU and I believe it's a great project. Now I can start criticizing it. Um, no, so first things first, I think, you know, if we talk about global democracy, the EU cannot be um, the main part of it, nor the starting point. I think both from a historical perspective, just because a lot of our countries um, have a colonialist past uh, and have created a lot of the mess that exists across the world and are still responsible for it. Um, it would just be the wrong starting point. If I imagine, again, I can be more critical of France because it's my country, but if I imagine France um, you know, starting a League of Democracies and leading it, I would just be very scared. And I imagine that a lot of the people in um, now and in other global movements would have a very adverse um, reaction to it of, look, you created the mess we're in today. Um, you also have a very violent uh, colonialistic past that has not been acknowledged to, to a certain extent. Um, don't start again with uh, you know, neo-colonialism and democracy. Um, so I think the EU cannot be the main um, point of a League of Democracies. I hope that all EU countries that are democratic, so not, I'm not sure that all EU countries now qualify as full democracies anymore, um, but would join the League of Democracies and would be um, taking part fully and, and, and working with every single other democracies on earth um, to better democracy and also to look at its own past and, and go through a reconciliation effort with the rest of the world. And um, I think the EU as a model is very interesting because it is to a certain extent the most successful example, I think, of, um, you know, working together across borders. And it's also a major figure on our levels. So we see it with Brexit. There's a reason for which Brexit happened, both from a UK electoral perspective, but also the mess that it created when the UK left, I think, and um, really brought to light a lot of the fundamental issues, which is that the EU is not very democratic from a citizen perspective. Um, you know, it's supposed to represent European citizens and European interests, but it really doesn't. The way the European Parliament is set up, and we saw it with Volt, when we created Volt, we had to create um, a national party in every single country, which was legally, financially, in every single situation, a huge mess. Um, we had, um, there was no real structure to enable European interests to come to the surface. And we tried to bridge it by having super hybrid structures um, uh, and, and being a bit at the forefront of this. but it just wasn't set up this way. And I think it's because the EU was set up at, at first with an economic interest perspective, a peace perspective and an economic interest perspective. It's also why it worked, but it's also for me why it's failing to work today. Because it was created this way, democracy is not at the core of it. Um, and the institutions themselves are not democratic and don't enable both lawmakers and heads of states and citizens to move forward. And if you look at some of the most important areas from fiscal justice to foreign policies, they're under a rule of unanimity. So literally all countries in the EU have to, so all heads of state, because the EU at the end of the day is ruled by heads of states, um, have to agree 100% on 
on a topic to be able to move forward. I mean, no governance works this way. There's no way 27 people in a room are going to agree on some of the most fundamental topics. Um, it, it just doesn't work. So the EU is paralyzed. So I think it's an interesting institution to look at in creating a, full, a form of global governance, both in the way it managed to, you know, keep national differences and, and there's a beauty to, you know, different languages and cultural differences and so on. And in how it's utterly failed to reform itself in a democratic manner to involve citizens because citizens just don't vote in European elections, uh, um, don't care about European topics, don't feel represented, um, and how national interests still prevail. Second, like the UN is the same, it's about national interests um, and European interests, second. I, I want to ask our last question, and we ask this to everybody in our podcast interviews. What is the single greatest threat to democracy in this century, and how can democracy survive that threat? For me, the biggest threat, the biggest single threat, is the fact of forgetting that democracies are here to serve their own citizens, and um, that's really, I think, um, it can be seen in the way that that the, the youth is disengaging a lot from democratic processes, voting, participating in, in electoral processes, and the youth will be, you know, the next generation that will have to teach their own uh, um, upcoming generation, their own kids, uh, about the importance of democracy. So if this continues and is not reversed, we're going to see in two or three generations a full disengagement from uh, people uh, into, into basically what governs their, 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 their lives. So I think this is the single biggest threat. And I think they will take a lot of work, a lot of effort in ensuring that, for example, digital revolution is completely integrated into our electoral processes. See, nowadays we can't vote from, from our smartphones, we can't vote from our computers, while everything else in our life goes through these channels, from working to managing our personal assets, communicating with loved ones, but we can't engage in democracy that way. So clearly, and there, there is a need for evolution. If not, democracy will slowly decay. So I think the disengagement is the biggest threat we are facing. Can I have two threats? You may have as many as you like. Thank you. Um, so I think one for me is a lack of representation. Um, so I agree, with, I, I agree with Andrea, but there's also the fact that, again, I'm a woman, I'm in my mid-20s, um, I'm not... And, and again, I'm hyper-privileged. I'm from Europe, I'm white and so on. I'm still not represented. Um, there's no one like me in power. Um, and so for me to be able to be engaged, I need to have people that look like me, that have a similar ex life experience and so on um, represented, which for me passes by having at least 50% of women in position of power all over the world in every single aspect of power. Um, and until we reach this point, I'm saying at least because in my opinion, men have held power for much for, for way, way too long. So a bit of imbalance for the next centuries wouldn't be something I would be against. Um, but um, only this way for me can democracy thrive. And we actually see it from studies when women um, are heads of state and hold more power, democracy thrives, um, there's less corruption, um, et cetera. So it's good for humanity. And I think um, the second aspect for me that is a big threat is that we often believe that we achieve democracy and then that's it. But democracy is never won, and there's a saying saying democracy is never won and always remains to be won. And I completely agree with it. But we tend to think, oh, look, I live in a democratic countries. Yeah, things are not great, but you know, it will be fine. 
but we know that that's not the case. We know that standards fall very, very fast. Um, and also that we can do much better. So it's understanding that we live in an age of digital revolution and, and we have a lot of opportunities to better it. So we should strive um, to always achieve higher democratic standards and not just wait for it to pass by um, and for you know it to survive somehow, but we need to work for it. Thank you so much. Those are both excellent answers and very engaging. Um, does anyone else on the team want to jump in with the question? or a final remark? I, first of all, I thought this was terrific. I thought your answers were excellent, especially to the last question. Uh, and I think we both really, or all four of us, have really enjoyed having you on. Uh, this was a really good opportunity to talk about some of the exciting projects that are going on uh, that I think too many of us may not be, be fully aware of. Um, and I would very much like maybe to have the opportunity to have you back at some point to maybe talk to students in some form because they are after all the generation you're interested in reaching um so i would be delighted if we could have that opportunity maybe at a later point to to arrange something i think that would be a fantastic opportunity especially at our college i i second that if you i mean i know how busy both of you are but if sometime uh later this year uh, you'd like to talk to a group of uh, Boston University students, you know, a larger group. Um, I think that you'd find it very interesting and I know that they would. Um, uh, and so, uh, yeah, but just just think about that, please. I feel uh, we would love it. We just speak a lot, like we just speak a lot. So, like, <laughs> Oh, I bet you maybe... have a lot of en uh, engagements, right? You mean you have a lot of speaking engagements. Um, I imagine so. Yeah, no, it's it's really exciting what you're doing, and um, and again, you know, the 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 work you do for people who um, don't have a voice because they're living in under regimes that can lock them up and silence them. Um, it's so important, and uh, uh, I do think it makes a difference because I think that the governments are concerned with how they look. Um, and, yeah. Uh, no, definitely. We would love. We would love to speak with uh, with yeah. students in general. So whenever we can, slash is needed, don't hesitate to call on us. And um, we we always very happy to do it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening in on part one of our series on democracy in the 21st century, hosted by Richard Samuel Deese and Michael Holm. We were joined today by Colum Cahen Salvador and Andrea Venzen, the founders of European political party Vault Europa and global political movement now. Please make sure to subscribe to The Politica to hear our next interview with John Vlasto, an associate of Democracy Without Borders who advocates for a UN parliamentary assembly in the UK. For more content like this, check out our publication and website as well. See you next time.